invite you to turn back to that, the passage that we heard earlier from 1 Kings um, chapter 18. It's on your sheets, if that's easier. Um, the big question, really, that this passage asks us this morning is, who is the real God? Who is the real God? Will the real God Almighty please stand up? So verse 24... Um, Elijah challenges Baal's prophets, doesn't he? You call on your God, and I'll call on Yahweh, the Lord, and let's see who answers by burning the offerings that we present to them. There can only be one real God. Um, so who is he? That, that's Elijah's question, isn't it? And as we, as we witness this sort of showdown, uh, we, we want to ask the question, who is my real God? Is the person or the thing um, that I hope in and, and live for really God or not? This is the great God contest, isn't it? And I want us to see three things as um, these two gods kind of wait in the, in the corners of the ring to come together. And the first thing is that the real God calls to be followed, uh, the real God calls to be followed. Uh, Elijah sort of lays down the gauntlet, doesn't he, in verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. It's just a little detail that's quite important, isn't it? That the first thing that to see in this God contest is that this, this question about who is the real God isn't just an intellectual question. This is not just a question that we can sort of ask sat in armchairs in a library. It's not about an academic theory. Elijah's challenge isn't if the Lord is God, sign up to the facts of his existence. It's not even just about what, what you say you believe, is it? whether you say you believe in the real God or not. Verse 21, if Yahweh is God, follow him. Or if Baal, follow him. It is a question, isn't it, that, that involves the, the direction of our lives. We don't get to sort of sit outside the ring watching as the audience, watch who wins in this God contest, eat, eat a hot dog and then go home. It's not like that. All of who we are and why we live is involved in this question. Um, you might remember, uh, if you were around at the time, that there's an, an ad campaign that, that um, atheist groups used on the side of buses a few years ago. And it was a kind of big banner on the side of bu bus that said, um, there is probably no God, so just get on and enjoy your life. Kind of powerful. And actually what that campaign showed was that the atheists are cleverer than Christians like to think. They are clever because they realize what Elijah is trying to get at here. That They realize the implications of the question. This isn't merely a theoretical question about whether there is a God or not. Because if there is a real God, then he is somebody who demands more than a nod of the head in recognition. The question is about your life and how you enjoy it and how you live it. 
The ad campaign understood what Elijah was trying to get them to grasp, that this is about following. It's about action. It's about life being lived and filled out with a purpose and a goal. If there is a God, our lives must change. It's to decide, isn't it, to think about for what and for whom you're, you're willing to get out of bed in the morning on a Monday. For whom and for what you're, you're saying to yourself, my life has a meaning because of this thing or this person. Now, um, maybe we're kind of thinking, well, this is great, but uh, the decision between the Lord of the Bible and Baal, um, it's not really a decision that I need to make now in the 21st century. This is a kind of ancient problem that they had to decide between in ancient Israel. But while Baal, um, the ancient pagan god, may not exist by name today, no, no one's heard of him, have they? He, he represents a very modern god who is still alive and well. There are many things about the ancient god Baal that, that are still alive today. Number one, Baal was was the god who seemed to kind of meet people's felt needs. Uh, he would scratch where they were itching. Uh, he, he was known as the storm god. Uh, and if you lived in an agricultural society, uh, everything depended on the weather, didn't it? Those things were really important to you. You, you need rain And so Baal um, pretended to give people what they felt they really needed. Um, He was also the god of fertility. So he he could bless you as you expressed your sexual desires, whatever they might be. Uh, So he met people's felt needs. Number two, he was also steeped in tradition. He was a familiar kind of god. We know that, um, actually, ever since the time of the judges in the Bible, Baal has kind of been a household name in Israel. He's been there. He's been part of the social and cultural furniture for years. So we don't know Baal by name, do we? But we know many gods like him today who appeal to us on the basis of what we feel and the prevailing winds of the society that we live in of self-expression and, and individual choice, of material gain. Now, those kind of gods scratch where we itch. Baal today is alive and well. And Elijah's God here makes huge demands, doesn't he? The real God intrudes upon and starts poking his nose into the things of your everyday life. So that's the decision the real God calls to be followed. Secondly, though, the real God calls you to freedom. The real God calls you to freedom. Um, as Baal, uh, the pagan God, and the Lord face off here, um, we don't just see the difference between them, um, but also between the kind of lives that their servants have. We see that the Lord's servant, Elijah, is relatively quiet in the passage, isn't he? He is quietly trusting in his God. He he knows something of true peace, even in a very stressful situation. But Baal's servants, on the other hand, are restless and utterly hysterical, aren't they? So verse 20. All the people of Israel gather along with all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, who's like a kind of twin of Baal. 
Uh, and it rings a bell, doesn't it? Because it's a bit like when Israel were slaves in Egypt. That, that is what it's like for the people. That there is a mediator here like Moses, Elijah, who comes to save the people from oppressive slave driver. Elijah comes to free Baal's servants from a god and a king who is weak and unable to give them what they really need. And all through the narrative, we get the measure of Baal by the lives his servants have to live. He is a god who requires much, but he delivers very little. And they need freedom from him. Uh, if you look at the numbers, they, they tell us everything, don't they? We're told that it's Yahweh versus Baal. It's Elijah, one man, versus 450 prophets uh, and 400 prophets of Asherah. Uh, and what is striking there is just the ridiculous amount of assistance Baal seems to need to get this job done uh, of lighting this um, sacrifice. It's one servant, Elijah, versus 850 prophets in total. And then there's just the way they go about things, isn't it? That There's the volume of frantic, frenetic activity that Baal requires in verse 26 to 29. That there are these scenes where Baal's prophets call out to him from morning until noon. And they cry out loud and they cut themselves They dance around and they they limp around this burnt offering. They rave on and on. And they cut themselves until their blood gushes out upon them. And twice after all of this raving and ranting, there's this repetitious crying out, isn't there? But verse 26, there was no voice. No one answered them. Verse 29, no one answered them. No one paid attention. Baal is useless. He requires much from his servants, but he delivers nothing. Sounds a lot like slavery, doesn't it? He promises much, but he gives nothing. We kind of laugh at this scene. We kind of cry at it at the same time. These are people who are utterly enslaved. They're trapped by their own desires and the pursuit of their own desires. They're slaves to to a God of their own making. And that's the point, isn't it, that Elijah makes when he, he mocks Baal in verse 27. Says to the people, come on, cry aloud, for he is a God. Well, either he's musing, he's having a bit of a think, he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or, or he's asleep. Maybe you need to wake him up. He's being sarcastic there, isn't he? And he's talking their language because pagan gods were understood to engage in human activities. They did human kind of stuff, just on a bigger level. And Elijah pushes that logic to the extreme, doesn't he? He's saying, you need to be freed from this god because he is only a god of your making. The real God has made you in his image, but but you've kind of reversed that and you've made this God in your image. He is not a real God because he's just a bigger version of yourselves. Baal is alive and well today because as we look around, 
uh, us, we haven't, uh, we haven't changed, have we? That the real creator God is there, but we, we worship so easily a God who demands much and, and delivers little. That God's of our desires and the things that we crave, but they never quite satisfy us. And don't we find ourselves, in our culture certainly, more and more frantic and frenetic? Even thinking the real God is like the gods of this world. And we can even do that in, in church, can't we? we? We can get into a sort of evangelical barlism. God will do stuff for me if I get into a frenzy, if I perform and I do more and I get busy busy, busy, then maybe Jesus will save me. God will will work and he will do these in my life if I do whatever it is. But maybe it's because we think God is like us or God has gone on a journey or, or he needs waking up or he's insufficient in himself that he needs to use the facilities because we've we've remade the real God in our image. And the Lord comes with Elijah to release these people from thinking like that. Uh, just look at the difference between uh, the worshippers of Baal and Elijah himself. They rant and rage from hours on end and nothing happens. And then Elijah soaks the wood of the burnt offering three times, isn't it? As if to say, look, God doesn't need any help. And then look at verse 37. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. Then the fire of the Lord fell. What's striking about that, isn't it, is after hours and hours of activity... Elijah prays a simple prayer, a sincere prayer. The real God does not require a frantic frenzy. The real God requires trust in him and faithfulness to him. And that is the relief of knowing the real God, isn't it? The freedom of having him. The Lord, the God of the Bible, is, is always powerful and he's always able. And the Lord is, is always in control so that you don't have to be always. We, we don't have to be frenetic, just faithful to him. You, you don't have to justify yourself by your work or your parenting skills or your grades you don't have to do something to be somebody in his church. You don't have to endure the slavery of serving a God of your own making who requires assistance and great numbers and a great show of human force. You've come to a God of, of simple faith. A God whose burden is light and whose yoke is easy. Because he does, through the Lord Jesus Christ, that the work that we could never do for ourselves. And Elijah goes out the way, doesn't he, to, to make it obvious that the real God needs no help at all from us. 
He's not a God to mount up endless words in, in repetitious and empty prayer, just as the Pharisees did, Jesus warns. There's nothing wrong with long prayers. It's good to pray, isn't it, um, for a long amount of time, but, but not in an empty and, and, a, and a repetitious and in a, and a servile kind of way. Luther said that we, we don't have to overcome the Lord's reluctance in prayer. We simply lay hold of his willingness. It's lovely, isn't it? We, we don't overcome his reluctance in prayer. We simply lay hold of his willingness. And the real God calls you to follow him and he calls you to freedom. But then thirdly and lastly, he, he also calls you to forgiveness. He also calls you to forgiveness. And I want you to see another important feature of this story that it might just slip us by um, on first glance. Uh, and it's not only that the Lord wins in a spectacular fashion here, does he? Uh, but, but it's how he wins. He doesn't win in a, in a sort of gloating way. There's no, see I told you so. And actually, the way Elijah sets this thing, this thing up shows that the real God gets the glory whilst offering grace to the people that he is teaching a lesson to. Um, if you look again at verses 30 to 31, it's one of those verses that you kind of might skip over. It's a little detail that packs a bit of a punch. Uh, Elijah gets the people together around the burnt offering, and he repairs the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down, and he sets up 12 stones, verse 31, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with those 12 stones, he builds an altar in the name of the Lord. Now, what's going on there? Maybe imagine, if you can imagine one of those romantic films where the couple has broken up and then they get back together at the end, don't they? And in those films, it's usually the guy's fault. Uh, and he's got to kind of find a way of um, getting getting back with um, the girl, hasn't he? And so what, what he does is he, he delves back into the memories of the relationship when it first started. He, he finds some memory, um, some token of their previous love. He, he finds the, the cuddly toy that he won for her at the fair. He finds the ticket stubs on their first movie night. Some symbol that she'll remember and that will kind of change her mind. And that is exactly what's going on here. Elijah sets up these 12 stones and it's a tender reminder of the very beginnings of God with his people. It's a reminder of when the Lord spoke to Jacob saying, Israel shall be your name, Jacob. The very beginnings of the covenantal relationship between God and his people. Notice how Elijah keeps referring to them as Israel, the sons of Jacob. Israel, do you remember when you used to be called that? Back before the split in the tribes, when you were all family together. And the symbol of the twelve stones and a burnt offering, those two things... Uh, were ringing bells for them, I'm sure. They, they were symbols of the, the high points in their relationship in the past with God. Um, think of Exodus chapter 24. Moses sets up 12 pillars and a burnt offering. 
after the giving of the Lord as a confirmation of their new life um, under God. Joshua sets up 12 stones when they first come into the promised land. Each stone represents one of the tribes of Israel, doesn't it? All of them together in God's land. And at the building of the the tabernacle and the temple on two separate occasions, Moses and Aaron and then Solomon witness fire coming down from heaven and consuming burnt offerings. All of those things are happening in this passage, aren't they? They are all symbols that God was telling the people and giving them a message and saying, come in. My people and I... Come together again and, and be with me in the land. Know again rest and peace from your slavery. You see, I have found a way that you can be with me again, even though you've turned away from me. Through sacrifice. All my people, all 12 tribes again, by promise and by sacrifice. And it'll be when I've consumed, when I've licked up your wrongdoing and I've opened the way to my temple. God delves into the past, doesn't he? He gets out the old photo album and he pulls out the old special symbols again for this faithless, lifeless people. This time, though, it's, it's different from the romantic comedy movie, isn't it? Because this time it's the offended party offering the tender token of forgiveness. As the fire comes down and it consumes the sacrifice on those 12 stones. And God's people, they realize here that God isn't just saying, I am really God. He is saying to them, I am really good. This is God saying, even after all you have done, when you've trusted in false saviors and you've become slaves of your own gods, I want to make a way for you again to be forgiven. And I'm making a way for you to have a fresh start, to bring you together and to be with you. Because actually, do you know, it it is no good, is it, just knowing who the real God is this morning? It's no good just seeing this contest between them and seeing that the Lord wins. It's no good even seeing that it would be really freeing to follow this God. It's no good even knowing that we we want to do that if we're not doing it. Because we've got to know that this God wants us to do that. And until we do, until we know God's feelings, if you like, about rebellious people calling them to himself through the Lord Jesus, until we know that, our false gods, they will have the power over us. We will always feel that guilt, won't we, and the shame. We'll always feel that need to to frantically self-justify, to be busy, busy, busy. And our false gods, they will have the power. We'll never turn from them and be free from them completely unless the real God deals with our conscience and frees us from justifying ourselves and working ourselves into a frenzy to truly free us from shame and to say, "I, I want you as my people. 
until those things that we, we cringe about when we remember them are replaced by the memories of, of his gestures and his work to bring us back through the Lord Jesus in the photo album as we look at the cross. And the things that hold us back from prayer and from seeking him until all those things in our lives are burnt up by sacrifice again. So the only way that we can have that is, is to go to the mount, isn't it? And this all happened on Mount Carmel. Uh, but we're not to go to Mount Carmel. We're, we're to go to Mount Calvary, aren't we? Where God sends a fire to burn a sacrifice at the entrance of his holy temple. Where the Lord Jesus is consumed by God's wrath upon the cross. And, and as that happens, God is saying to us, isn't he, Let, let's come together again. Let's start this again. I want you to be mine. The Lord, he does demand a great deal from us. He, he demands more than just a willingness to part with our gods. He wants us to actually part with them and to follow him. But this is the place that marks the difference, that gives us the fuel for that. The place, the mountain, the mountain of sacrifice and consuming fire on Calvary. And until we meet this real God there, we'll never be able to follow him wholeheartedly, will we? We'll never be free. But in Christ, he is the God who is real and he is the God who is always in control. He is the God who is always great so that you don't have to be. He is the God who doesn't just give you your felt needs, but he deals with your conscience and your shame. And he is the God who has made the way to be free. The Lord is God. He is the real God. And the Lord, he is good. So will you follow him this morning? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess that, that you are the real God. We know that this is not about simple decisions of belief or assent to a creed whilst we love our creeds, but it is about how and what we live for. It is about whom and what we consider to give our lives meaning. And you, you call us not simply to be willing to part with other gods. You, you call us to part with them this morning. And Lord, we, we know that this would be the most freeing thing to do. To cease serving gods that, that promise us so much but deliver very little. Help us to know the liberation of a God who is real and capable and strong so that we don't have to be that we cease from striving to, to justify ourselves in a frenzy and to know that the freedom of being faithful to you alone. We, we thank you for making the way that, that we might come back to you through the consumed offering of the Lord Jesus Christ on Mount Calvary. And we pray that you'd help us to put our trust in him and to know that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we pray in his great name. Amen. Amen.